0: We'll commence this morning, and we do welcome you in the Saviour's name uh, to the adult Bible class, and we welcome those watching online as well. Trusting the Lord, uh, we'd be pleased to meet with us uh, for these uh, few moments before morning worship. We're going uh, to seek the Lord in prayer, and then we'll turn to His Word together. Let us pray. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for thy goodness and mercy toward us this Sabbath day. We thank thee for this day that we can return again to thy house. And Father, we pray that thou would be pleased to meet with us, to bless us, to instruct us through thy Word. And we pray that we would have that fresh understanding of thy truth, that fresh blessing from thy truth, as we consider more of what thy word is today. We pray, Father, that thou would be pleased to bless us in thy house. We pray that as we worship thee, we would do so in spirit and in truth. And Father, come and bless and open thy truth to us and apply it to our hearts. And we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. We're turning to uh, three passages in Scripture this morning. Uh, firstly to Second uh, Peter chapter one. 2 Peter chapter one and we'll read uh, from the verse nineteen. Second Peter chapter one and reading from verse nineteen down to the end of the chapter at verse twenty one. And then John chapter 5 and the verse 39. It's a well-known verse of Scripture here. And the Savior says, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And here the Savior is referring to the Old Testament Scriptures, and he's telling us that uh, these scriptures testify of Him. Uh, there's a unity in the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament, and uh, the Old Testament speaks of the Saviour. It tells of His coming. It tells of who He is. It tells of His death. And then in Luke chapter 24 we uh, see this reinforced again. Luke 24 in the verse 45, uh, the verse 44, uh, the Saviour is speaking to the disciples in the upper room. And he says, and he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you, that while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts this morning. Last time, uh, we considered the inerrant veracity of the Scriptures, that the Word of God is true and that it is without error. Uh, We must also mention here as well that uh, we also consider the inspiration and sufficiency of Scripture. We must remind ourselves that the Word of God, based on all of these properties, the Word of God is a necessary Word for us. But in light of these truths, there is an important and vital question arises. How do we know that the Bible is the true and accurate Word of God? How do we know that the Bible that we have in front of us is true and accurate in the sense that it contains all the 66 books that are inspired by God? So we haven't missed a book, we haven't added a book that we should not have added. How do we know that uh, these 66 books are that inspired revelation, are indeed that sufficient revelation, are indeed that inerrant and true Word? And this is not a question about Bible versions, of course, but rather a question about what books should be in the Scripture, the canon of Scripture. And that word canon it comes from uh, the original Greek. It refers to a collection of books that we would classify as genuine. It is a word that in the original Greek appears in various places in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 13, Paul says, But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you." And there are other verses as well where it is referred to as a rule, as a line or as a standard. That is the meaning of the word. And so the canon of Scripture is the rule of Scripture, the line of Scripture. That word has been used to refer to Scripture, that rule that all believers are to live by. And so the canon of Scripture is that rule that line, that standard that God has given. And of course, it is used to refer to those 66 books uh, that we accept to be the Word of God. The Church of Christ has historically believed uh, that these 66 books that we have compose the Old and New Testament Scriptures and compose the Word of God. And therefore, that list that we know well is that list of these writings. And that list was finalized and accepted uh, at the time of the early church. However, the canon of Scripture held to by the Reformed Church differs from the canon of Scripture that is held to by the Roman Catholic Church. Their canon of Scripture is more extensive as it includes those books that we would refer to as the Apocrypha, books that are not inspired Uh, Books that uh, may have some historical value, but spiritually are not not recognized as being on the same level as Scripture and not being inspired by God. And we will come to uh, that uh, next Lord's Day, God willing. But in regard uh, to the canon of Scripture, it is this subject that I want us to consider this morning, and then next Lord's Day as well. And there are four thoughts uh, that I have regarding this. Uh, We have, uh, firstly, the belief, the belief in the canon of Scripture. And then we'll move uh, on to the qualifications, uh, next Lord's Day, the Apocrypha, and then we'll consider the completion of the Word, or the completion of the New Testament uh, revelation, the revelation of God as contained in His Word And that will deal uh, with the fact there is no new revelation, that it is all contained in Scripture itself. So that would be quite extensive, and we won't get to that uh, this morning. But firstly, here, the belief. The early church considered the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament to be the Word of God. And the Jews of the Old Testament period had received the Articles of God. They had compiled their Scripture, written by uh, the prophets— And so the New Testament church recognized that the Old Testament Scriptures still had a relevance and still had a purpose for them gone were the sacrifices, gone were the rituals, but the Word of God remained and was of benefit to them. We consider John chapter 5 and Luke 24 where the Savior refers to the Scriptures. He's not referring to the epistles of Paul in that context historically. He's not referring to the revelation of John in that context historically because the words of Christ in those chapters predate the writing of those books. In the context he is referring, to the Old Testament Scriptures. And of course, as we accept the New Testament, we can say, well, the Scriptures old in you testify of Christ. The Scriptures old in you contain the things about Christ. But in the context here, he is referring to the Old Testament. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, we have that familiar verse, "All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And again, uh, Paul has in view the Old Testament Scriptures as well. Uh, it is given by inspiration of God, but it is also profitable. Profitable. This old revelation is of profit to us for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. In Second Peter uh, chapter 1, uh, we read those words about the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, But holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Again, the Old Testament Scriptures are in view. And this brings us to the conclusion that the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is a logical conclusion, the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles, the writers of the New Testament and the New Testament church, did not reject the Old Testament. There are many today who don't see a relevance with the Old Testament to our generation. Uh, They preach from the New Testament, and the Old Testament is largely ignored. Uh, But yet it is the revelation of God that is profitable to us. And the early church recognized the value of this revelation, recognized that it was of God, and it was profitable to them. And that is an important point for us all to understand. Scripture, therefore, has a blessed unity. And while some of what the Old Testament teaches has been replaced by the teaching of Christ through the death and resurrection of the Savior himself, the Old Testament is not to be discarded. We do not come and celebrate the Passover. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We do not come and sacrifice the finest animals to the Lord. Uh, Christ is that sacrifice that we look back upon and we remember and we hold dear. And of course, the sacrifice of animals is just a type of that great sacrifice of Christ. And so, there are things in the Old Testament uh, that have been fulfilled in Christ that we do no longer practice. But the Old Testament is not to be set aside, uh, because it is part of that unified, divine revelation of God. And the Old Testament of the Jews is the Old Testament of the Christian. There, There is much more that we could uh, say here, and of course, this subject is very vast. And when I was uh, studying this, there were many, many lists. And I remember looking back uh, when I was in college uh, concerning this subject, and we had list after list of uh, various men, especially regarding the New Testament scriptures and the books that they saw as being part of the canon of Scripture during uh, the various years in which it was compiled and prior to the church universally accepting the canon that we have today. There were books that were added and books that uh, were rejected, and then there was this general consensus at the end. And of course, there's much we could say regarding that. We could go through all the lists and specific books, uh, but I think we would get quite lost. But you can go and do that uh, yourself. That can be homework. uh, But Uh, There is much uh, to be said, and we're only scratching uh, the surface here. Uh, Going back uh, to uh, the Word of God, the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible ended around 435 B.C. No other prophet then was inspired to write. And the Jewish Bible is in in three classifications. And as the Savior says, we have the law, we have Moses, the law, of Moses. We have the prophets, we have the Psalms, or or the writings, as sometimes it is called. And that canon was fixed generations before the early church was formed, or the church formed in its New Testament uh, context. During the New Testament period then, the authors of the New Testament Scriptures, as well as the Savior, quoted from several Old Testament passages. There is no dispute revealed in the New Testament as to the canon of the Old Testament Scriptures. It was settled long before. There were many disagreements between Christ, as we know, and the religious leaders of the land on various uh, subjects, but not on the subject of what books should be included in the canon of Scripture. After the ascension of Christ, and with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the Lord, the Spirit of God, moved. And new revelation was inspired. New revelation was written down by the apostles. And the ultimate source of that truth is God himself. God working through his Spirit. God working through his apostles. Like God working through his prophets and working through Moses and the Old Testament being penned. So it happened again through the apostles to write down the New Testament Scriptures. And the truth of Christ was passed to his apostles, and those apostles then proceeded under the inspiration of the Spirit to write a revelation that is inseparable from the previous Old Testament revelation. That is important. Inseparable. Inseparable. Because the New Testament is a continuation, it is a fulfillment— of the the Old Testament. The Old Testament sets the foundation. Why do we need Christ revealed in the New Testament? Well, it is because of what the Old Testament reveals to us regarding our sin and our misery, regarding the state of man. The Old Testament reveals to us the promise, the proto-evangel, Genesis 3 verse 15, of how Christ was promised to come and to bruise the serpent's head. And then that promise is taken through the Old Testament. It's held to. It's believed. It's looked for. And as time progressed, there were many other prophecies. Isaiah 53 being extremely prominent regarding the lamb that was led to the slaughter, the one who would, who would die. There are types and shadows of Christ. And then when that revelation ends, there is that new revelation that takes up the account, the record, the very commencement, as it were, of the life of Christ his conception, his birth, his life, his death. That revelation then continues and tells us how the early church was formed. And then we have those letters of doctrine and instruction from the apostles culminating in uh, the revelation of John uh, that shows us what will happen in the last days and the coming again of the Savior. There's a unity here. It is inseparable, inseparable, And so, this collection of the Hebrew writings, the Hebrew Scripture, it was expanded to include writings by the apostles and those who wrote under the superintendence or authority of the apostles. We have Mark and we have Luke. And some of those writings themselves pointed to an expansion of the canon of Scripture. Uh, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, in the verse 14, we'll turn to that for a moment. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, the verse 14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless, and account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also according to the wisdom given unto him hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, Which they are unlearned and unstable, rest as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Here, Peter is speaking of the letters of Paul, the epistles of Paul, in the context of scripture, other scriptures. So there's a recognition here that there is an expansion of the canon of scripture. The earliest Christian writings outside of the New Testament elevated the words of Christ and the writings of the apostles, recognizing that divine authority within them. Polycarp uh, wrote a letter, and in that uh, letter was a reference to a portion of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And the reference that Polycarp makes is, this is Scripture. This is Scripture. It's another anonymous uh, work that noted the complementary authority of the books of the Old Testament and the books of the apostles. And there are many other examples in the early church where these writings that we see as the New Testament today were recognized early on for having authority and for being Scripture. And so this crucial question arose, which writings then in the early church should be included in this new canon. We just can't include everything, uh, because there were letters penned that we know nothing about. There were letters penned uh, from believer to believer. There were letters penned, as uh, we even see today, uh, pastors and teachers still write letters, not on the same level of Scripture, of course, not inspired letters, but we write. There's writings. uh, There's books. Which of these are Scripture? When we look at the Old Testament or the New Testament church— there had to be a qualification. There had to be some criteria. And when we think of the letters of Paul, they were written by an apostle, clearly invested with divine authority. They were easily recognized by the church to be Scripture. But what about the anonymous letter to the Hebrews? Many believe that Paul wrote that letter, but at the stage of the New Testament church, Was this Scripture or was it not? There were other letters as well. Mark and Luke wrote Gospels. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. Should these be placed alongside the writings of the apostles? What about the letter of Barnabas, the shepherd of Hermas? These were two early writings that were used and read by the the early church. And so this issue of canon, it became quite the question. False teachers then began to arise within the church. Uh, there was one particular one, Marcion, who was the leader of a heretical movement. And he, his canon of Scripture consisted of the gospel and the apostle, Luke's gospel and some letters of Paul. He rejected the entire Old Testament and all the parts of the growing New Testament that reflected upon the old. And so therefore, the church was concerned by what was happening. The canon of Scripture had to be finalized. And so there were two criteria uh, that uh, came into the equation. Does this writing have an apostle for its author? And Mark and Luke were considered to be associated with uh, the apostles and writing under the superintendence of the apostles, the authority of the apostles— Some would say that Mark's gospel is the account of the Apostle Peter. And, of course, Luke documents not only Christ, but he documents the early church also. And then they ask the question of antiquity. Has the church historically recognized God speaking in this writing to his people? Is it something that has been recognized by the church in general? The church did not set out to determine the canon of Scripture in the sense of, is this book Scripture or not, and to make that judgment, but to recognize what books God had determined to be part of Scripture. The Westminster Divines in the 1600s set forth their belief concerning the canon of the Word of God, chapter 1, sections 2 to 3. And it says there, under the name of Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are these. And they include the 66 books. I'm not going to read them out. Uh, we, all, uh, we all know them. Perhaps, well, uh, perhaps we should have a Sunday school quiz and see who can start at Genesis and work all the way to Revelation. And then see who's smart and we can work backwards. Uh, but we won't do that. We'll leave, we'll leave that uh, to the Sunday school uh, to do something uh, like that with the children. I remember as a child in Christian school and in uh, Sunday school and children's meetings learning uh, the books of the Bible. And I did hear of one particular church, not a free Presbyterian church, where a young person uh, got up and recited the Old and New Testament forwards and then they did it backwards. And, well, that might help if you're at Revelation and you want to find uh, Timothy's epistles. Uh, but when I uh, first heard of that, I thought it's, well, it was, I think, showing off in some ways, uh, because what is, what is the purpose of being able to say them backwards whenever the person involved, sadly, uh, as time moved on, had no time for Scripture, No time for Scripture. We can know the Word of God, we can read the Word of God, we can know the books forwards and backwards, but yet it's the content of Scripture that is important. It is the content that we need to know, that we need to believe, that we need to hold to. And certainly there's a reminder that while we may be able to quote the books in order or quote the books backwards, or know where they are, or find our place, or even be able to quote portions of the Word of God. We need to know Scripture in our hearts. We need to know and believe what God's Word teaches, because it is that necessary Word for us and for mankind. And so the divines recognized the canon of Scripture that we hold to today, and they stated that all which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life— And then they went on to say the books commonly called Apocrypha not being of divine inspiration and no part of the canon of the Scripture and therefore are of no authority in the church of God nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of other than other human writings. So in other words the Apocrypha, these books and we'll consider more about this next Lord's Day God willing these books were part of the Roman Catholic canon of Scripture but the Reformers and the the divines of the Westminster Assembly recognized that these are not inspired. There were things in them that do not sit well with the rest of Scripture. There is not that work of inspiration uh, that was used in the writing of these books. And so, The canon was recognized. These 66 books are not a selection from all of God's inspired writings. We see today many books, whether it's novels, whether it's in theology, uh, there are works of men and they are select works of men. Uh, There was one of the uh, Puritans published recently, William Perkins, and Reformation Heritage Books published, I think, ten volumes of his works And then they went on to publish an extra volume of works that had never been published or compiled or put into that original uh, ten-volume set that had been reprinted. And so we have the works of William Perkins, but they're not all the works of William Perkins. There's a little bit extra. And that is very true whenever we consider the works of many uh, theologians and Puritans. We have the works of men, but there's something perhaps that hasn't been included. There's something extra And it's great, it's an extra book to buy. Uh, But when we think of the Word of God, our Bible is not a selection from all of God's inspired writings. It's not men sitting down and thinking, Well, we have Genesis, and we have this other book that relates the creation of the world, and then we have something else written by somebody else about how the world began, and then we have all these records of the kings, we have all these psalms and these songs. What do we put into the Word of God? We can't put everything. And of course, there is a reminder of that in the Word of God, uh, because I believe uh, it's I believe it could be Luke. I may be wrong. Uh, But there are words in the Scriptures that remind us that the world could not contain all the books, all the words that could be written about the Savior, about everything that He has done. And so if we were to have a complete record of everything about God, no book could hold it. It would be that vast and infinite. And so the Word of God that we have is not a selection from all of God's writings, the things that men thought that we might need out of those writings, but rather the Scripture we have is all of God's writings, all of God's inspired Word, everything. And that would bring us then in next Lord's Day to our thought about the completion of Scripture, the completion of Revelation. We have everything that we need. That is the historical belief in the Reformed Christian faith. God's Word that we have, Genesis to Revelation, is not a summary or, a sele- or it's not a selection of everything that God has given, but it is everything that He has given to us. And God has preserved that. And that brings us to the thought of the preservation of Scripture, Psalm 12, verses 6 to 7. The psalmist says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt keep these words. Thou shalt preserve them. Thou shalt preserve these words from this generation forever. And history shows us that man hates the Word of God Man has sought to destroy the word of God, but what does the Lord do? His word is preserved. And part of that preservation is his church recognizing that God has determined a canon of Scripture. Not the Roman Catholic system where the church gives the authority to Scripture, but rather the authority has been given to Scripture, and the church recognizes God has given that authority. And God has given this canon. The Lord preserves his word. He guards it. He protects it. He maintains it. He uses men to proclaim it. He uses men uh, to translate it and to pass it on. And when we consider what we have here, the authorized version, a lot of what we have in the authorized version is very similar to the work that William Tyndale did uh, when he translated his New Testament. And what happened to William Tyndale, a man who faithfully translated Scripture, wanted to put the Word of God into the hands of the ordinary English man, and he lost his life for doing so. He was not the first. He was not the last. Men gave their lives so that we could have the Word of God, a Word that has been preserved by him, the Savior said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And dear believer, we can have a confidence that what we possess is a full and complete canon of Scripture. This is only a summary. We could go into all the details and how they compiled the books and what books they accepted and rejected at different points in the early church. But it would bring us to the same conclusion that what we possess, we believe to be the full and complete canon of Scripture. And that gives us confidence. That gives us confidence that we're not missing something. We're not missing an important book. We're not missing an important writing. It gives us confidence then in preaching, because our preaching and our teaching is based... On God's word, God's inspired word, a complete canon of God's inspired word. It gives us confidence in believing because we're not missing something. If you were investigating a particular a crime and you were looking at the evidence, how often, how often in a novel or perhaps in one of those television shows that show an investigation, there's something missing, a little piece of evidence that they need to, as it were, blow open the whole keys. One little piece. But yet, when we come to the Word of God, everything is here that we need. And that gives us confidence in believing. It gives us confidence in reading. It gives us confidence in evangelizing the lost, does it not? Because everything that we need is there in the Scripture— How encouraging that is to us. We have an inspired word, an errant word, a sufficient word. And it is sufficient because it is a completed word. A completed word. Secondly, here, I want you to see the qualifications. The qualifications regarding the canon of Scripture. We've touched on this a little already, but this brings us to the theology behind the question of scriptural canon. How do we know that these 66 books are the right books to include in the Word of God? What criteria, what qualifications do we see for that? Well, firstly, there is a divine quality, a divine quality. The book, in the books written by God, <coughs> there ought to be evidence of their divine origin. The Reformers referred to this as the divine quality or the divine indicators. In Psalm 19 and Romans 1 verse 20 regarding creation, we see God's attributes revealed in the created world in natural revelation. And so in special revelation, we would expect to see also the attributes of God revealed. If we uh, turn in the Psalms to Psalm 119... Psalm 119, and the verse 103, we see something of the beauty and excellency of the words of God. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. There is a beauty and an excellency, a sweetness regarding God's Word because of who God is. There's a power in the Word of God as well. A power in the Word of God. In Psalm 119 and uh, the verse 50, it says, This is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me. Thy word hath quickened me, hath raised me up. Thy word has resurrected me. There's a power here within the Word of God. And dear believer, when we look at Scripture, do we not see the sweetness of it? Do we not see the power in it because it is God's truth. There's a unity, there's a harmony in the Word of God, because Scripture has, as we've considered already, a unified message. There's no contradictions, there's no errors. It's a message that can be trusted. There is a divine quality. When we read the Word of God, we're reading His inspired revelation. And therefore, when we ask that question, what books should be contained in Scripture? Well, those books that have that divine quality, that divine quality. And it's through these qualities we can recognize the voice of Christ speaking to us in His Word. The non-believer will reject these qualities because they see Scripture as a man-derived book void of supernatural power and influence. It's an old book. It's out of time. It's irrelevant. But yet, because it has a divine quality, men— do not recognize that, but because it has a divine quality, it is relevant to us today. It has a beauty. It has a power. It has a unity. And then there is a corporate reception, a corporate reception. Building upon this last thought, there is not merely a divine quality that is recognized by you or I in the Scriptures, but rather recognized collectively by the people of God. There will be pockets of disagreement, but the predominant consensus will be that these are the books that God has inspired. And the church collectively and historically has recognized that these books are the canon of inspired Scripture. There's a wonderful thought here that Christ leads and guides His church. He is the great king. He is the great head of His church. And in accepting this canon, and by... The work of the Holy Spirit in accepting this canon, we recognize it as Christ's canon. We recognize it as those books that Christ has given to His church. He leads and guides us through His word, and He leads and guides us to accept His word and these books as Scripture. There is a corporate reception, and again, I've said that. There's much we could say there regarding the acceptance of these books by the New Testament church. uh, But I think to look at it all would be in-depth history and looking at lists of books and various things. uh, But this is rather a summary of that. Uh, But then we see as well, uh, the authors had authority. The authors had authority. These books were written by God's chosen vessels. His inspired prophets and then in the New Testament, his apostles. In Romans 1, verses 1 to 2, it says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The prophets of God wrote the Holy Scriptures. Again, in Second Peter 3, verse 2, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, What words? The words of Scripture that were written by the holy prophets. And then we have the apostles who were Christ's witnesses, who had authority given to them by Christ. In Mark 3, in the verse 14, it says, "...and he ordained twelve, that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach." In Luke 10, verse 16, He that heareth you, heareth me. And he that despiseth you, despiseth me. And he that despiseth me, despiseth him that sent me. He that heareth you, heareth me. That is what the Savior is saying to his disciples, to his apostles. When you speak, and when men hear, they hear me. They hear me. Do you believe it should not not be your desire? when we speak the Word of God to others, that we would not be heard, but Christ would be heard, that his Word would be heard. The apostles were given authority by Christ, authority to preach, authority to teach, authority and then inspiration by the Spirit to write this new part of Scripture. And these books that we have are recognized as being written by those who were inspired by God, and as they wrote, were inspired by God. And then there is a blessed message, a blessed message. Simply the message of Christ in His gospel. It's a message that is of blessing to us. And when we consider this message contained in the New Testament canon, it shows to us that these books are indeed the Word of God. What does the Savior say in that verse we read in John 5? Search the Scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which speak of me. And again, Luke 24 echoes the same thought. The Scriptures speak of Christ. And the true canon of Scripture is a canon that testifies of Christ it's simple it's clear the word of God revealed to us what books should be in it those books that speak of Christ because Christ himself says that the scripture speaks of me the word of God speaks of Christ dear believer do we desire that word that speaks of Christ what is your view of the canon of scripture Again, lots more that we could say, many deep things we could go into, but a very simple overview of this subject. What is your view of the canon of Scripture? And you may say, well, that's strange to be asked that. Why are you asking me what is my view of the books in Scripture? They are Scripture. As you said, the church has historically accepted these books, but if you accepted these books, I remember talking to a young man once. I think I may have said this uh, before. He didn't like the theological books in the New Testament, such as James and some of Paul's epistles, but he loved the Acts of the Apostles because the Acts was history. It was exciting. There was account after account of how God moved and how God worked. And that is more interesting, he thought, than reading page after page of Biblical theology. He had his favorites. When it came to the Word of God, when it came to the New Testament, he had books that were his favorites, and books that were not so much of a favorite. And yes, we may have our favorites, favorite characters, favorite verses that God has used to encourage us. But let us be wary of condemning other portions of Scripture or neglecting other portions of Scripture. Scripture as uninteresting or boring or unnecessary. Often if we go to a restaurant, we have our favorite thing on the menu, and we eat that. I was at a restaurant recently. It's always, uh, I think, I order most of the time chicken parm, and I decided to order something different, and it was nice to order something different. It was interesting to try something fresh, and I think I'll get that again, uh, because I enjoyed it. But yet... When it comes to Scripture, we can fall into the trap of that. We like a particular book. We like a particular character. We read all about them. We read the Gospels. We read the Acts. We ignore Jeremiah. We ignore Isaiah. We ignore Ezekiel. We set them aside because they're deeper books. They're not so easy to understand. They're not so easy to read. And we'll focus on our favorite. But yet God has given us a full and complete canon of Scripture. Yes, we can have the verses that mean more to us, characters that uh, we are blessed by studying, but let us not neglect. That's the main key thought here. Let us not neglect other passages in Scripture. For it is all God's canon of inspired Scripture. We are to study it. We're to study it with grace. We're to study it with prayer. And therefore, dear believer, we can have confidence in the state of the canon of Scripture. We'll come back to this next Lord's Day, God willing, and look at the Apocrypha and look at the completion of God's Word and the ending of Revelation. But we can have so much confidence, a great confidence that God has given His Word. It is complete. It is assured. Let us study. Let us read it all. Yes, it will be difficult at times, But let us study with grace, let us study with prayer, praying that God would teach us, that God would open up His Word to us. It is all God's canon that He has given to us and to His church for a glorious purpose. May the Lord bless His Word this morning for His name's sake. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word, and we thank Thee for uh, this Reminder, this summary of the canon of Scripture. We thank Thee for these, these books, <coughs> that Thou was inspired. And we pray, Father, that as the church historically has recognized these books, that we too would recognize these books. That we would not read just that little portion that we like, but we would partake of all the counsel of God. And that would be pleased to continue to reveal thyself to us in thy word. Father, we pray that thou would part us now with thy blessing. We do remember the Lord's Day services to come. We pray thou would bless thy servant as he brings thy word. Use him, we pray. And may we have a blessed time here meeting with thee, our God. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.